This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by 23andMe.com. With 23andMe's genetic service, you can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. It's Wednesday, October 18th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Rule Breakers and Supernova, David Kretzmann, and from Supernova and Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jim Mueller. Happy Wednesday, gents. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Happy Black Monday anniversary eve. Is, 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 it, it, is yeah. that the day? <laughs> well, tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, got it. So, I, as I look at Kretzmann, I realize I'm I'm quite confident you weren't even born. But yes, yeah, <laughs> so I, I had no idea what you were talking so about. Is that so a holiday? Jim, Jim and I know. I, rec- what, I recognize the, the the reference, but I didn't realize it was this. Yes, this week. Tomorrow, October nineteenth, is the thirtieth anniversary of Black Monday. Got it. Yeah. Now, now I, I know. Yeah. I'm sure, now I'm on the same wavelength. I'm sure, you it took read, me a little while. Sure, you read about it in a book somewhere. <laughs> yeah. History text. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're gonna dip into the full mailbag. We got to start though today with Big Blue. Holy cow! IBM, despite the fact IBM streak is intact, and when I talk about IBM streak, I'm referring, of course, to this is the 22nd consecutive quarter of falling revenue for IBM, and somehow, David. Shares of IBM up nine percent today. What what is going on here? <laughs> first, think... first of all, they could have had an amazing quarter. They could have broken the streak, and I still wouldn't have expected the stock to be up nine percent. Yeah, I think in this case, it's just low expectations can be a wonderful thing for for a stock in the short term. Uh, but in general, this is kind of a similar story for IBM. You have what's really been a struggling legacy mainframe hardware and software business trying to transition into the age of artificial intelligence with Watson, cloud computing, things like that. So, they are continuing to see some progress with their strategic imperatives. So, you know it's important. Uh, that those are their new businesses, like cloud <laughs> Please, computing. Wait a minute. Please tell me that that is the name of their business, one of their business units. That, that's all their up-and-coming important businesses. So, th- okay. those are you know cloud computing, artificial intelligence, Watson applications, things like that. So, kind of all the new sexy stuff. For this quarter, uh, strategic imperatives, all those different segments and businesses grew 11%. So, not knocking the cover off the ball, but it, it's at least growing. It's not dropping. And that segment now makes up 45% of total revenue. So, it's getting closer and closer to a tipping point where you could see the company returning to growth and hopefully they can end that unfortunate streak of 22 straight quarters of sales declines. Their cloud revenue, uh, kind of narrowing in on that, was up 20%. But in general, even with that growth of strategic imperatives, they're still seeing their margins decline, but the pace of the decline is slowing. So, if you want to find a silver lining there, that that could be one. And I I thought it was interesting to take a step back and compare IBM and Microsoft, because back in 2009 or so, these companies were about the same size, about $150 billion in market value. They're producing roughly $16 billion in free cash flow. So, that was back in 2009. Eight years later, today IBM is producing less free cash flow, less than $13 billion in free cash flow. Microsoft, over $31 billion in free cash flow. IBM's market cap today is still around $150 billion. Microsoft at a nice $600 billion. So you can just see the trajectory of those businesses, which were in kind of similar positions where they had a legacy business that was producing a lot of cash, but both of them kind of missed the initial transition to things like mobile, cloud computing, artificial intelligence. Microsoft, under the leadership of Satya Nadella the past few years, has 
really had had a resurgence uh, in a huge way. But IBM is still trying to figure out its identity uh, as these uh, new initiatives grab hold. But it seems like with those strategic imperatives moving in the right direction, there's still reason to be optimistic that IBM's wor- worst days aren't necessarily ahead yet. Well, and it's a great point about Nadella, because when he brought in to replace, at, at the time, longtime CEO Steve Ballmer, there was not necessarily any reason to expect uh, the the type of performance we've seen over the last few years from Microsoft, and I think it is an indication of how important leadership is. And look, it it's still with IBM, it's still a one hundred fifty billion dollar business. They still have plenty of things that they can do, and maybe if they get the right leader in there, that is the catalyst to sort of move things along. Yeah, I think it's a company that can still be relevant, but like I said, I think they're still struggling struggling to find their identity. At this point, they're spending more each on dividend payouts and stock buybacks than they are on capital expenditures. So, they're basically sending more money out to shareholders than they're investing in the business. I think in a case like this, where you really do need to be investing to be on top of these emerging trends, I would hope that they would maybe prioritize their capital expenditures a bit more. But they, they still have a lot of cash. They have different levers they can pull. So, yeah, I, I can understand, given the low expectations, why the stock is popping a bit today. Nine percent, though, that's a lot. So I mean, but but looking at the past couple of years, again, it still hasn't been a pretty story for IBM. Again, at some point in the next, say, just conservatively five years, I would bet that they break this streak. And what a party it's going to be then! Hey, something to look forward to. Uh, monthly housing starts in September came in lower than expected. Um, U.S. home building fell to a one-year low. Although Jim, we were talking before we started uh, taping. I, I'm I'm not entirely sure why this is a surprise when you consider the impact of the recent hurricanes. Right. Uh, so uh, the numbers were September housing starts came in at 1.127 million, uh, but uh, the expectations were for 1.18 million, and as you said, a one-year low. So that's down about 4.7 percent nationwide. But in the South, where those hurricanes hit, in Texas is a big area. Florida is a big area. Uh, the, the the downdraft was 9.3 percent. Uh, for those, uh, and and that's to be expected because about half of the home building in the nation is down in the south, and so I, I follow um, uh, Meritage Homes, a, a recommendation in Stock Advisor, and uh, and for, and in options, and they've been saying that construction is already tight. Uh, they've had labor issues for years, basically since the the uh, housing bubble popped. I mean, all the all the skilled workers were laid off, and of course they had to go find other jobs, and now that the recovery is well in place, there's not the big labor pool that uh, housing construct uh, home builders need. And that's been uh, keeping the starts down. It's been keeping prices high because supply is constrained. And with the hurricane- Have, have they thought about uh, paying people more money? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, they they do, but uh, it takes takes a while to become skilled uh, uh, a plumber, an electrician, um, every all these different skilled labor that you need to build a home, especially the modern homes, uh, the green homes, the ones that are well wired uh, for internet and all that other stuff. Uh, so, um, and now with all the reconstruction that's going to have to be going on in Houston and in uh, Miami and uh, and points west from there, and even out in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, labor's going to get even tighter. And uh, with an administration that is uh, not too happy with immigrant labor, and where an industry has anywhere between 13% and 25%, depending on how you're counting immigrant labor, it's yeah, it's, this is going to be 
a probably a multi-year issue, I think, for the housing, certainly for multi-quarter for housing, yeah. You agree with that, David? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And it's interesting to take a step back and think about which industries will uh, be negatively impacted by this, and some industries will actually do pretty well. Like looking at total retail sales in September, they actually grew 1.6 percent from August, and that's the highest increase we've seen since March 2015. And it looked like that was primarily due to consumers purchasing cars, gasoline, and building materials, especially I think in the yeah the, the Houston and Miami. Areas and you see some companies like CarMax, the used car retailer, which the stock is up over 16% since Hurricane Harvey hit uh, in mid-August. So, yeah, you, I think you'll see some companies like the the uh, car dealerships, retailers probably see see a nice short-term boost in business anyway. Uh, I would think Home Depot and Lowe's will do pretty well as re- this rebuilding effort continues, and that should be a, a boon for, for at least the next few quarters. Yeah. So, what should investors expect in terms of the earnings season that is going to kick into high gear over the next few weeks in terms of companies citing the hurricanes? Because Obviously, as you indicated, Jim, particularly when you're talking about housing and how dependent it is on the South and the Southeast United States, that makes perfect sense. I am also very, very confident <laughs> that there are going to be some companies that cite the hurricanes that will leave investors sort of scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, are, really? About the, about the only company I think that won't be doing that is Warehouser, which is up in the Pacific Northwest. So <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're safe. <laughs> they're, they're safe. But everyone else, I mean, restaurants are going to cite it. Uh, yeah. uh, regular retail, not not housing-related retail like Lowe's and Home Depot, but regular retail uh Maybe even affecting the Christmas shopping season, uh, where people are having to spend to uh, rebuild and restock their houses rather than buy all the all the toys and gifts. So yeah, yeah I, I can. This will this will be a while. Yeah, one one company that I would expect will mention the hurricanes quite a lot would be Chewy's. It's a small cap restaurant that started in Austin, but they have a heavy concentration in Texas, including Houston. So I think when you have a heavy concentration in that region and your restaurant, which has already been struggling the past couple of years, this won't help. Well, and in the case of restaurants, obviously you're looking at revenue that's never going to come back right. because you can op- you can fix up your restaurant and open it, but people aren't going to eat twice as many meals just to make up for that. Whereas, well, speak for yourself, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but but with uh, with auto dealers, uh, with the car manufacturers, those are purchases that are seemingly just delayed or just sort of pushed off a little bit. Delayed or even addition. I mean, right. uh, if you have an, a car that you were thinking of. Uh, uh, of replacing, but we're willing to wait another year or two. And now it's submerged. And now it's submerged, or or was submerged, and yeah. So a lot of those have been possibly pulled forward in into uh, the next couple of quarters. But and so that might affect those companies further down the road. All right. Before we dip into the full mailbag, I want to say thanks to twenty three andme dot com for sponsoring this episode of Market Foolery. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. I haven't done 23andMe.com yet, but I'm I'm betting pretty heavily it's going to be Ireland. That's just a call it a hunch. Uh, with your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com slash fool. That's the number 23andme.com slash fool. What will be your DNA destination? Our email address is marketfoolery 
at fool.com. Question from Matt Clemente, and this dovetails off of our conversation yesterday about Netflix. Uh, Matt asks, what if Amazon broke out not only the video streaming, but also music streaming as a combined separate service for, say, $10 to $15 a month? Um, and for those who missed yesterday's episode, this was we were talking, Seth Jason and I were talking about Netflix's latest quarter, and I made the point that I, I look at Netflix and I see a business that over the next two years is in really great shape for whatever people may think of the valuation of the stock. I just, not to say that they can't be disrupted five years from now, but I just think over the next couple of years they're, they're in really great shape. And, you know, you get some analysts hypothesizing this type of thing. Uh, and the example I used yesterday was Amazon. Uh, one analyst was like, well, what if Amazon breaks out Amazon Prime video streaming for just seven bucks a month? And it's like, okay, well, Yes, that that is a possibility. But uh, until that actually happens, why don't we, why don't we just sort of hold off on that for let's, before we get our you know all twitterbated about that. Um, but I don't know, Jim. To to Matt's question, when you think about competition for Netflix, uh, where do you think things stand right now, and how much of a threat do you think that type of thing would be from Amazon? Actually, I think it would help Amazon more than hurt Netflix. I mean, uh, Amazon Prime Video is buried within the Amazon ecosystem. Uh, there's Amazon, there's Amazon Prime, there's Amazon Video, there's Amazon Prime Video. You're using Amazon Video to watch Prime Video. When you go searching for a movie, I when I just did it this morning, I ended up with DVDs instead of Prime Video. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, so uh, so there's kind of a a branding issue that Amazon needs to fix, and if they broke that out and uh, the streaming service and broke that out and tied it with music, I'd probably buy it. I'm a subscriber and shareholder of both companies, uh, Prime Prime yeah, Prime member, I guess. And but as for competing against Netflix, while they already compete, it might make things a little more clarified and uh, a little more focused for Amazon and the Prime Video to have a business unit focused exclusively on that rather than as an adjunct bonus for being a Prime member. Um, but uh, not anytime real soon being a really serious um, According to Sandvine, the last numbers in 2016, Netflix accounted for 33% of the prime time downloading, down, downstreaming, and uh, Amazon Prime just four percent, so it'll be a while before they become a serious competitor. Well, and we've talked about this before. This is this is not like buying a car. This is not like buying a house. No. There, this is a situation where it's perfectly reasonable to expect people will have multiple streaming services. Yeah, and it was actually last year where Amazon announced that they would be offering. Prime Video as a standalone subscription offering at nine dollars a month, and I don't know if if that's still active or if what would actually happen with that. But they did offer that, and the the funny thing about it is nine dollars a month over uh, over the course of a year that would end up costing more than the ninety nine dollar subscription right. for Prime. So it's like, okay, if you're buying that, why don't you just buy Prime? And I don't. I think one advantage that Netflix continues to have in the streaming space is that they are truly global today, and no one else comes close to the global scope that they have. Netflix is now over in over one hundred ninety countries, so they they're getting 
that data, they're, they're getting the, the habits, they're, they're understanding the habits, the usage of all these users around the world in those different regions. And that data will increasingly be helpful for them as they try to figure out what content they want to invest in. So for, for other companies, though, that are tr- stumbling a little bit more through a few different regions, and not really on a global level, level, I think it's a little bit more of a shot in the dark with content. And I think, uh, to, to Netflix's credit, they have had a, a stronger record of producing hits compared to Amazon. Uh, Amazon obviously has received its fair share of awards and things like that, but they haven't had the mega hits that, that Netflix has right. pretty consistently been, been able to churn out every year or two. So I, I think that global data advantage will continue and probably even accelerate for Netflix because they're, they're the only company operating on that scale. And I, I think it'll be a while before Amazon or someone else really matches them there. Now, Amazon is international. They are in uh, Europe as well. But uh, David, you're exactly right. Netflix has been collecting this data for years and years, and they have a big head start. And that's really helping them uh, figure out what, what pro- uh, content to go after and, and what content to produce. Amazon will catch up or, or will get more and more data as, as they do more and more and more of this, as will Hulu and as will Disney when they launch their thing. But uh, Netflix has a, a big lead in that department. I totally understand why any company would keep information private, particularly when it comes to their membership base and uh, all of the data that they have. That being said, I genuinely appreciate that Netflix is starting to share, as the, as they have spread across the globe. I love that they are sharing, sort of country by country, what shows are really popular. So, for example, learning that and and Jim, we've talked before about how uh, over the last few years, as they have expanded internationally, they have done a very good job of of uh, going to showrunners in different countries and producing shows that are you know native to the country, native to the language, that sort of thing. Um, but the fact that, for example, in Ecuador, uh, the most popular show in terms of streaming Netflix is Fuller House <laughs> is just delightful to me that you know the, the the defenders, the Marvel series, which I greatly enjoyed. I've heard, I've heard that Adam Sandler is real popular outside the US. <laughs> is he? Yeah, oh yeah. Tom Cruise certainly, at is. least according to Netflix. So. Uh, uh, the Defenders is is the number one Netflix show in Korea. So anyway, it was just uh, I appreciate that they share that stuff. Um, uh, one more mailbag question uh, from uh, this, I don't know this person's name. It was simply uh, Pistol Cell, Pistol Cell at AOL dot com. Uh, would you guys recommend 3M as a buy and hold forever stock? Uh, 3M, one of the one of those. I don't. Is 3M a dividend aristocrat, or it's, I think it is. it's it's pretty darn close if yep. it, if it's not already? But um, 3M is one of those sort of boring stocks that also does really well. Just over the last decade, it's it's more than doubled the market's performance. Um, probably best known for Post-it notes, although they do oh, yeah. some, Scotch tape, Scotch tape, so many different things. Um, I don't know if it's a buy and hold forever, but uh, let me throw it to you guys first. Jim, what do you think? Well, 3M, uh, they're very big in their research and development field, and I think they make it a point of having a third to half of their sales from products that they've developed and launched in the last few years. So they're very dynamic, and, and I mean, they're just not resting on their lawyers. L- l- Laurels, <laughs> not their lawyers either. But <laughs> every company of that size is resting on their lawyers to one degree or another, of of uh, having post-it notes. But um, 
I think the way the question is framed, buy and hold forever, I don't think any company is a buy and hold forever, a never sell. I mean, yeah, you do have the stories of buy and hold for years and years and years, and you turn a few thousand dollars into a few million dollars, and that's that's fantastic, and I'm hoping to do that with Netflix myself. <laughs> uh, but uh, there are times when it makes sense to sell the company. Uh, 3M is a decent candidate. Uh, I have another uh, company in mind, Rollins. Uh, that's not familiar under that name, but if I say Orkin Man, you'll recognize the company. That's right. And they're the pest control company with Orkin and several other brands. Um, one of the great lines their uh, uh, CEO says is that uh, cockroaches don't read the Wall Street Journal. So, <laughs> so they don't. So it's a very by by that he means it's a very res- recession resistant company, and they've grown. Uh, the rev- both revenue and earnings year over year on quarters for what is that? I think the forty-five consecutive quarters now. Uh, so, so, the, so the opposite of IBM, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the direction you want to be going. Yeah, and they've raised their dividend. They have a one point, uh, or is it one point two percent yield? They've raised the dividend ten percent or more for the last fourteen years. So they're not maybe not a stock aristocrat or dividend aristocrat, but they're headed that way. Nice, David. What about you? And if it's if it's not forever, um, what's a stock that that has a really long horizon in your mind? Well, uh, to, to to the point about 3M, I think something that is appealing there is that they have they're operating on a global scale. They have a lot of repeat sales, and basically, as the economy grows, 3M will also very likely grow for a long time. And I think another company that fits into that is Starbucks. Uh, they're actually opening. Uh, 12,000 new stores by 2021. That's their goal. So, by that point, if they hit that mark, they'd have over 37,000 stores globally. Uh, and they think one day China will exceed the U.S. in terms of store count. Right now, the U.S. has over 13,000 stores. China has about 1,300 stores. So, uh, you know, obviously, a lot of room to grow there. They're getting more into tea, ice beverages, food, just a lot of different levers they can pull across. Really, an incredible retail restaurant business globally so i think and it doesn't hurt that you know caffeine is legally addictive like people people keep going back for more <laughs> don't i know it yeah so uh, and the nice thing when you look at these kind of companies that you would feel comfortable buying and holding for 20 plus years ideally longer uh, is as they grow and increase cash production over time the dividend will increase along the way or at some point if a company's not necessarily paying a dividend today or much of a dividend today that dividend one day could potentially be even you could be receiving more cash in the form of dividend than your original uh, position that you bought. So that that can become a very powerful kind of multiple compounding multiplier over time when the dividend you're receiving exceeds the initial price you paid to buy the stock. If you reinvest those dividends in more shares of the stock, that helps too. Yeah, yeah. That that's how that how that that's how that works inside a human lifetime. Yeah, check that box. Yeah, like just that. If you can get one of those, like like Cisco, the uh, not not. The, the the data company, but the food dis- distribution company. Cisco with an S. Right, Cisco with an S Not and a Cisco Y. Cisco Systems. Right, right. If you had bought shares of them in you know 1975 and held them to today, I think the the dividends you'd be receiving today would be double the the price you paid for the stock at that point. So just an, an incredibly powerful force when you can find a company like that and hold it over decades, which is obviously what we're all trying yeah. to do here. It's a long time horizon, but if you can be patient, hold great companies. For a very long time, can be a really powerful effect. There's there's lots of companies like that. Coca Cola yeah. uh, has that. Uh, Altria Philip, slash Philip Morris has that. Um, 
Yeah, 3M's 3M's a great company. I'm I'm not saying don't buy it and don't hold it, but uh, uh, but there are others out there as well. Yeah. Original name is Minnesota Mining, Mining and, and Metal Mining and Minerals Minerals. Yeah, I think. Yeah, no, my, Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. Manufacturing. Uh, there, there you go. go. You know what? 3M. 3M. Yes, <laughs> they, they change it to that for a reason. That, that was, that at was, some uh, point, someone said, "You know what?" <laughs> kind of like at some point, someone at the National Biscuit Company said, "Can we just shorten this to Nabisco and move on?" And they did. All right, Jim Mueller, David Kretzmann, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. As always, people on the program have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fool. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.